Hello and welcome, friends, to a special holiday edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. Yes, we are Forward Radio, broadcasting from the top of the historic Hayburn Hill building here in downtown Louisville, Washington. I almost said the place I grew up because we're talking about family today. Uh, but yeah, we're broadcasting here at Louisville at 106.5 FM, and we're live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. You may be listening to our live stream now, or maybe you want to catch up on the archives of our programs. This and all of our local programs are archived right there at forwardradio.org. And while you're there, become a part of this community. We built this for you. It's radio for the people, by the people. You are the people. We want to be on the radio, behind these microphones and behind the scenes, helping keep the station on the air. And we also rely entirely on your contributions to sustain us. We are listener-sponsored community radio. And we're family radio today because I got my whole family here in the studio. It's amazing. Uh, it's such a special Sunday evening for me. Usually here I'm alone producing the program. This time I've got everybody in the studio with me because of the Thanksgiving holiday. It's really special uh, to have my parents here. Gloria and David Mogg, welcome guys. Hi, Mom and Dad. Yeah, hi. We're glad hey. to be here. They are um, glad to be here. Members of Elders Climate Action, and they live in Arlington, Virginia. We're going to talk about that. They're also really excited about getting a T-shirt soon that says "I survived the '70s twice" <laughs> because they are in their Even '70s, I and I was born in the '70s, as was my brother Joel Mogg. Is here. Welcome back to the studio, Joel. It's been a while. Good evening, sir. Hey, it's good to have you here. Joel's a social worker in Seattle, Washington, uh, and also a fellow bike commuter. He's got a new e-bike. Maybe we could talk about that, too. Uh, it was Joel and I who uh, biked across the country with my dad in 1989, and that set us down a path of uh, being car-free in most of our life. So, uh, And I also have uh, Joel's wife is in the studio again, Madeline Ostrander. Welcome back, Madeline. Hey, Justin. It's great to have you back in the studio talking about your new book. Uh, I'm so excited. It is coming out in August of 2022. Uh, it's, it's finally all done, right? It's all done. Like it's pretty close. Like, we're, we're so close to the finish line with this book. Uh, she's been working on it for many years. It's called At Home on an Unruly Planet. Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth, coming out in August from Henry Holt and Company. And you can learn more about Madeline and her new book at MadelineOstrander.net. M-A-D-E-L-I-N-E-O-S-T-R-A-N-D-E-R.net. Uh, okay, let's start by talking about Elders Climate Action, uh, because I'm sure our listeners are excited to learn, what, you know, climate change, this is an issue for future generations. Why would elders be taking action around this? Well, I think that that's exactly why. Um, in our elder years, I th we st we're a lot more concerned, thinking a lot more about our legacy. Mm. Um you know, what has our time meant on this uh, planet? Mm. And, um, you know, what's going to happen to those who are coming behind us? So I think elders are particularly concerned about their children, their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and really what lies ahead and, and what we are leaving behind for, mm. the, uh, for them. Mm. Dad, what got you involved in Elders Climate Action? <laughs> well, um as a scientist and a numbers person, Justin, I mm. just did the math. And curiously, the bike trip that you mentioned across the country that I was the adult <laughs> leader yes. of 
Um, I was actually a year younger than you are now. That's right. That's right. That trip. I missed Um, my chance. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, after that trip, I started teaching high school science because I was concerned about climate change Mm. way back then. And I wanted to teach the next generation Mm. of voters. When I finally became a real elder and had retired, I got involved at the very beginning of the organization that's now known as Elders Climate Action. Oh, okay. At its very first meeting, national meeting in Washington, where uh, we came together to listen to Jim Hansen, whose name I hope many of you recognize, one of the leading scientists uh, who got involved in in, uh, uh, trying to get Congress to pay attention to this, this issue. Uh, anyhow, uh, I, I got, got involved then. Gloria was uh, a participant in that meeting as well. And um, together now, we are very much involved in the organization. Um, and as Gloria said, we, we, we're concerned about the future, uh, mm-hmm. both for you guys, our children, uh, for uh, all, all life. Yeah. Is there a minimum age for participating in elders' climate action? No, you get to self-define oh, that. Okay, good. <laughs> but most uh, most everybody is uh, fifty-five and older, or sixty and older. That's in the. And it's it's a national organization. It's or? a national organization uh, started in California and um, now has about eleven thousand members after about six years of being in business. Uh, it is part of a larger Elders Action Network, mm. um, which started, a, I think, a year before Elders Climate Action started. And, and uh, Elders Action Network is concerned with uh, all the big issues in terms of social justice and oh, nice. um, yeah, other concerns. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, so if folks at home want to learn more, they can go to eldersclimateaction.org. Um, what is the mission of the organization? Is it influence policy? Is it influence individual choices? What is it, What is the action that you all are encouraging as elders? Uh, well, it's an action network. <laughs> <laughs> so we're hoping to activate elders um, around the country. There are I believe 75 million um, Mm. folks over 65 at this point in time. And many of them uh, have been very active in their lives and are retiring and uh, do not have a a way to use their skills and their gifts to uh, work on the things that are concerning them. So this is an effort to get Get people activated, get them together, get them educated about climate problems in the elders' climate part, and um, and then get them writing letters and marching and mm-hmm. um, going and lobbying and uh, finding whatever ways, both locally, statewide, and uh, and nationally, to influence uh, legislators to. Uh, move forward on climate on the climate crisis. And Dan, I imagine the organization was very uh, activated during the COP twenty six, right? The me- recent global meeting, the twenty sixth one. Do you remember the Earth Summit back in nineteen ninety two? Like this is when we started having these conversations. But it's happened again. And and so, what happened with the Elders Climate Network during that COP twenty six? Well, there was lots of concern about whether or not. Uh, the United States would be in a position to make any major uh, leadership statements. Yeah. Um, 
And so we were really quite pleased uh, that it was possible for Biden, President Biden, to go uh, to COP26 and to make uh, 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 some commitments. Uh, indicating that the majority of the American public is in favor of the actions that are being taken. In fact, what pleased us was <clears throat> that as they looked at the Build Back Better bill, it became clear that a lot of the aspirations that uh, Democrats and people, uh, left-leaning people had about having a huge new social programs, including uh, daycare, um, and so on, that th there, was, there was a lot of excitement about that. A lot of us felt that this was the time to do it. Mm. But when push came to shove, it was clear that in order to get that legislation passed, it was going to have to be pared down. So many of us in Elders Climate Action uh, lobbied members, lobbied by sending mail and email and phone calls, members of Congress to recognize that action on climate change was really urgent and that uh, it made no sense to cut back on the uh, parts of that bill that were intended to move the country along towards a fossil-free future. Mm. Um, and so we were very pleased when indeed that happened. No doubt. Uh, the, the cutbacks were on things that are aspirational and we could hope for uh, passing legislation in the future without, without damaging um, the, the movement, urgent movement on climate change. So I'm wondering if there's a, a local connection here with Elders Climate Action. When you're in, I'm sure you're on national calls and things like that, do you ever hear from anybody from Kentucky? Uh, or do you know of Elders Climate Action Network action here in Kentucky? Well, we're, we're, really, uh, we're really looking, Elders Climate Action is looking to establish state groups. Great. Uh, and... Uh, Gloria and I are involved right now uh, in trying to get a group established in Virginia. Oh, okay. Uh, we have maybe 5,000 people, uh, no, uh, overall in the country, 10, it's 10,000. Is that right? 11,000 right? 11, wow. members right now, yeah. And do wow. you know the number in Virginia? Uh, well, Approximately 500, maybe? Uh, maybe. Uh, there's 100 on my mailing list. I'm trying to get uh, a chapter uh, yeah. started cool. in Virginia. Yeah, there are 11 chapters now uh, throughout okay. the country, and uh, they want to they get a chapter going in every, every state. Kentucky does not have a chapter, um, but I know there are, there are people in the state that are um, members of Elders Climate and are interested in well, and here's a local connection, perhaps. I know that we have a very active citizens' climate lobby group here in Louisville, and many of them are your age <laughs> or slightly younger. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, are there connections? With well, citizens if there's climate? anybody here who's listening uh, who is already associated with the citizens' uh, climate lobby, they should know that Elders' Climate Action does not try to develop its own policy. Mm -hmm. Rather, it wants to partner with organizations that have much more sophistication than a <laughs> volunteer group like us has. And uh, from the beginning, uh, we have been allied with uh, CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby. We've been allied with them and supporting their approach to uh, carbon fee and dividend. Yeah. So yes, if there's anybody on this yeah. uh, listening to this now uh, who is already a member of CCL, you, you really ought to look at our website and uh, at least consider um, uh, getting getting emails from us and understanding what we're trying to do so that we can get some synergy going here. 
And again, the place to go is eldersclimateaction.org. And when you go there, you will see people marching in protest, which is a rich part of our own family heritage. And I was reminded of this uh, when I was on uh, Kyle Kramer's podcast, Earth and Spirit podcast, and you heard it rebroadcast on this program last week. Uh, And I talked about a little bit about how it just felt like part of our DNA as a family. And I'm wondering if Joel remembers going to the National Mall and protesting or anything like that. Growing up, do you remember, am I having my own crazy memories of this, or is this something we really did, Joel? Yeah, there was some of that, and uh, people would come from other states to come visit us. And That's right. And we'd just kind of get pulled along into the crowd. We were like the radical hostel in our, uh, in D.C., right, for, for yeah, people I mean, from all around. The, the time I remember the most was in college. There was a, a women's march, and... Um, I'd gone to a predominantly women's school, and uh, it's like the whole, the whole basement where there was like half a dozen women that came, and uh, it was just a lot of fun to be um, kind of accepted into that group. Yeah, and to see Joan Jett. Really? Oh, wow! Cool. <laughs> Not in our house, but <laughs> on the national on mall. the national yeah. mall. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so for the for people who've never been to D.C. and haven't experienced this, the National Mall is just a wonderful gathering space. It's gigantic. It's enormous. And you can fit so many people on that for all kinds of things, right? The 4th of July and all, all sorts of other things. Uh, but I always loved riding my bike, you know, five miles from our house down to the National Mall on any day just to see what was happening. But especially when there were big protests or uh, you know, on the on the, I have very good memories of Obama's inauguration. Oh, yeah. Remember that, Mom? Oh my gosh! It was gosh, so cold. Was oh, how could you forget how cold it was? <laughs> it was freezing cold, but the spirit in that crowd was amazing. Yeah, and it was huge. I mean, you could barely barely make your way on the mall. And Amanda, you and can I literally had... go down to the the mall in D.C. any day and find somebody protesting something. Um, but right now, the um, both the Poor People's Campaign and the mm. uh, um, the climate um, activists are there in full uh, force mm. to try to um, to affect the the passage of these recent bills and and make sure that their interests are being followed. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I'm speaking today here on Sustainability Now with my own family. My name is Justin Mogg, and I've got all the Moggs in the house today. My brother Joel Mogg is here from Seattle, along with his wife, Madeline Ostrander, whose new book we're going to talk about in just a second. Uh, and then my parents are also here. David and Gloria Mogg are in from Arlington, Virginia. They're part of Elders Climate Action. Madeline, I want to bring you into the conversation. We've been talking about people taking action on climate change. Your book is fundamentally about climate change, right? Yeah, it's about climate change, and it's also um, about the idea of home and what it means for us all to be living in places that are changing because all of us are experiencing climate change. Um, And so it focuses on a few communities that are really uh, directly experiencing impacts related to climate change and and about um, individuals in those communities who are, you know, taking the lead in some way or um, who 
really care about those places and what does it mean to try to reexamine how we live? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's kind of wrestling with this fact that the, the earth has already changed, you know, anthropogenic <laughs> changes to the planet are already happening around us. And, uh, you know, people are very focused on this issue of adaptation. But I think what's exciting about this book is it, it's, not, it's not talking about it at a political level, is it? Is, is it more about what individuals are going to do? Um, it's almost more of like a philosophical book in a funny way. It's, it's, um, it's a very reflective book. Um, and there's a set of four stories about different communities that are dealing with either the impacts of climate change or in one case, it's a frontline community that has, is at the front of fossil fuel extraction, um, and refining specifically. Um, You're talking about in Alaska, right? Uh, this particular community is in California. It's, um, it's actually Richmond, California, which is next to one of the oldest, uh, oil refineries in the country right. and also one of the largest um, fossil fuel emitters in California. Wow. Um, and that refinery is 100 years old and that community has been dealing with those impacts for a really long time. But there's been for decades now and it's, it's really continues to build in a way that I find very inspiring a lot of local interest in how do we create an alternative here? What would it mean to have a different kind of economy? What would it mean to have a different kind of community? What would it mean for people who have lived in poverty, who have lived with a lot of pollution, to have a voice in what kind of future they want? And how do you take a community that's been so thoroughly dependent on fossil fuels for its entire existence and think about how it could transition and become something else? Which I think in microcosm is is a conversation we're having in the whole country, right? And when you think about a community like this, you see fundamentally how difficult it is and also what's at stake and the level of commitment and imagination that takes and so um that's one of my favorite stories in the book i mean there's there's four um and three of them are a little bit more focused on kind of the the specific impacts of climate change itself but this one brings it together with the questions about what do we need to confront the challenge and that's part of i think how the the book kind of fits together to have this this story about what does it mean to re-examine how we live, how we have communities, who we are on this planet now in this moment of incredible change. And I already spilled the beans about Alaska, so you better tell us the story <laughs> about going to a very remote village, right? Yeah, um, I've been to Alaska a few times to do, or, well, two really substantial trips to do reporting. One was in 2015, and the other one was in 2019, just before the pandemic began. Wow. Yeah, Um and uh, both times I went, one of the places I went was a little community called Newtok, which is um, out in southwest Alaska. It's in an area of Alaska that speaks primarily Yupik as the first language. So it's a native Alaskan community. And they have been trying for about two decades um, to relocate their village because it's facing catastrophic erosion, which continues mm. to get worse as climate warms because one of the things that holds the landscape together is ice and the shorter (laughs) the the winter is the more the the landscape begins to unravel and so they've been um, trying really hard to pull together a combination of different kinds of funding and different kinds of help to relocate um, and you know still be able to be plugged into all of the things that you need to live a modern life like you know how do you build power and sanitation and all of that way out on the tundra so it's um it's a pretty complex sort of infrastructure challenge and it's a complex cultural challenge and i think it reflects a lot about 
again, what, what does it mean to live in this precarious time mm. and try to hang on to who you are and try to hang on to your traditions and mm. um, try, try to continue to know the landscape because that's a big part of the culture is, mm-hmm. is knowing the land and practicing subsistence. And so um, mm. I think all of those are part of all of those questions are part of that story. So what you've said got me thinking about this idea of, of nomads. And I'm wondering if these peoples were originally nomadic and had settled into more permanent villages that are now being threatened by climate change. And so is a return to nomadism part of the conversation? You know, that's a little bit something that I wrestle with um, in the book and that I also wrestled with in some of the stories that I wrote about them. They were indeed semi-nomadic. So okay. they, they had, um, they moved seasonally. There were places where they hung out in the winter. They were just called winter villages um, where they they lived. And then during the summer, they would go to different camps and fish. Um, seal harvesting was also, and still is, I shouldn't speak in the past tense. Right. Um, seal harvesting, subsistence, fishing, um, gathering wild plants off the tundra are still very much part of this community are very much part of what they eat yeah. on a regular basis and, and a big cultural connection to the land. Um, but yeah, in order to really comply with the requirements of American society, including having a stationary school where mm. people could be taught um, according to the you know, regulations we have about mm. what kids have to learn in school, they needed to settle, they were required to settle um, into a stationary place. And that also means, you know, engineering and infrastructure yeah. and things that are heavy and difficult yeah. to move. And so um, it's interesting to think about kind of cultures that learn to um respond to the landscape and what it asks you to do or to respond to changes in the landscape and our culture where we sort of ask nature to try to yeah. to bend to our own rules which <laughs> isn't necessarily working out so well for us and so i mean i think in a sense you know whether or not we need to learn to be nomadic or not not you know i think we need to reorient the way that we think about the world we can't always force nature or force the climate or force um you know the planet to conform right. to human needs it, it's not working out for us so well so, <laughs> <laughs> you're right you know that's part of it and then i think part of it is is just about we need to rebuild these relationships we have with the, the places around us we need to recognize that reciprocity is part of living on the planet and yeah. when we lose that then we start to lose our way which has happened yeah Madeline Ostrander's book is coming out in August of 2022. It's called At Home on an Unruly Planet. And you can find out more about it at MadelineOstrander.net. And talking about nomadism, I cannot help but tie that back to the, the cross-country bike trip in 1989. Because <laughs> that's the only time. Well, one, we've done many bike trips, right? But the, it's on a bike trip that I, f- that I get to feel like a nomad and get to feel the generosity of all of the peoples and cultures and and the land too in a way i suppose uh that we pass through uh and i wonder if that's a lesson that that you dad and joel picked up on uh and and how does it how has it stuck with you uh living a nomadic life you know that 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 kindness is one of the things i remember the most is um we would meet all these strangers and a lot of times they just come up to us because they would see us and we looked weird and you know they were interested <laughs> in us and um I, I remember things like being given ice cream and yeah bought pizza uh, yeah a couple of times people said come stay in our rv 
Um, I imagine Dad probably greased the wheels of a lot of this, but 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 a lot of times too, it was just like, can I drink out of your hose? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think it was, uh, you know, it's been enough years that it was kind of a more open time in that way when people talk to each other more. But but definitely, it was a much different experience than you get if you drive cross country, where certainly not everybody you meet is nice to you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's just different expectations now, too. Uh, this is pre-cell phone, right? Pre-internet, you know, really. Like, we, we had paper maps and didn't always know where we were going to stay that night, right, Dad? And we kind of relied on the local knowledge. Well, we not only had paper maps, we, we had no cell phones. So there was no way for us to communicate with each other when we got separated. Yeah, that was rough. And there were a couple of <laughs> a couple of rough incidents that that had uh, that had that. I guess mom feature. was our ultimate emergency contact, though. Yeah, we call her. <laughs> call. <laughs> what have you heard? Have you... Remember what payphones were? <laughs> yeah, no, those are... 1989 was feels like a long, long time ago. But um, the thing that the thing that I remember so clearly is that. I imagined that when we finally made it to the Pacific Ocean, we would have this great sense of relief that the journey was over, that we'd achieved our objective, and that we could relax now. Yeah. And instead, it was a feeling of, oh my goodness, this has been a wonderful experience. Can it continue? <laughs> yeah, you didn't want and, it to stop. And in I fact, that. Jo- jo- Justin, I think you remember that we spent two more weeks yeah. uh, going even further than our goal, which was Astoria, Oregon, and where the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Uh, Joel, unfortunately, had to return home to start college. <laughs> he had he had a responsibility, but your your high school start date was a couple of weeks later. Yeah. So we extended it. Uh, and and I at that point I was prepared to extend it and, and bike alone for another two weeks to visit wow. my aunt who wow. lived in Calgary, Alberta. But um, things uh, things were uh, were problematic back home, and Gloria pleaded with me to come <laughs> home. But I really got into the nomadic life. I had I, it, and and it was the kindness of people, the experience, uh, and I think part of it was that as Joel said, we looked weird. But the weirdness was that we had these bikes packed with all this gear, and people who'd never encountered a bike tourist like us before, they, we were a curiosity. Yeah. They wanted to know about us. And when they, when they heard our stories, they would often uh, offer to buy us pizza or yeah. bring us ice cream or whatever. It was amazing. It was yeah. a great, great experience, and I'm so glad that uh, we were able to do it. Joel, I know you came in with some questions. Uh, you, you've always wanted to ask Dad about the bike trip. Well, that's true, because I look at it so much different now as an adult and as a social worker. I think a lot about just kind of the emotional aspects of it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the time, it was just kind of like, you know, we had done a lot of adventures, you know, a lot of driving cross-country and right. national parks. Right, that was parks. how we got started and on these adventures. So, right. so this bike trip was like, okay, this is just what we're doing this summer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it didn't really strike me as as something absolutely incredible and epic <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and unusual and just a tremendous gift, too, that yeah. a father would want to give his sons the entire summer. Yeah. Um, the, you, most boys don't get that. Um, and and I wonder too what that was like for you. I mean, did it feel like 
a sacrifice? Like I have to go spend my whole summer with these smelly teenage boys and <laughs> ditch my wife and <laughs> sleep on the floor and yeah, I, yeah, I could see how you might have questions like that. <laughs> well, part of it, th uh, frankly, was the fact that I had been um, working at the time as the India program officer for the National Academy of Sciences, and I'd been doing that for four years. And that required me to take trips to India three or four times a year for two to three weeks at a time. And I felt I felt as if my sons were growing up without me knowing it because I was away oh, as much as I was. Sure. So for me, the, the, the two, two months, we knew it would take a two, about two months, the two months on the road with you guys was a chance for me to get to know you better. And indeed I did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and I think we were kind of obnoxious too. So I, I think about that too. Is uh, you know there, there was me and Justin and, and our friend Owen, and uh, you know I was the oldest one at eighteen. Um, so uh, yeah, I remember like we would pick on you too because when we were, when you're teenagers, you know the adult is uncool, right, and, right, right, you know everybody's dumb, and you know we dad would take his shirt off and we'd get you know, embarrassed we'd get yeah, embarrassed yeah. and uh, although i have to admit i when i did try that like you know after <laughs> weeks of like uh you know kind of making fun of him for it i, I tried it and it was just fantastic <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't do it for long though because i was pretty worried about burning but yeah. uh, <laughs> well i'll tell you if, uh, again what saved me was the fact that i'm married to a social worker i'm a scientist <laughs> and uh you know i i really didn't know much or anything about parenting. Uh, thank mm. God uh, your mom was uh, skilled at that and, uh, mm. and patient with me. So I learned so much from her. And um, during the first two or three weeks on that trip, I tried to behave in an authoritarian way. Uh, yeah, that I work. wanted to control. I felt responsible. I, you, I wouldn't let you go down the hill ahead of me. I right, would right, right. insist that you follow me so that you didn't get going too fast. Owen didn't like this. And, uh, yeah, this didn't last and, long. And that, was, that was problematic. But uh, every night I would phone home and uh, have a conversation with Gloria and and she would counsel me on how to how to work with you guys. And one of the things that I that I really learned was that you needed as young people to have as much responsibility and I just needed to, to step back and realize that, well, you might actually have an accident, but um, I, I've got to trust that, you, uh, th th that you're going to learn things from this trip. Mm. And uh, as a result, the, the end result really was pretty good. We're speaking today here on Sustainability Now with my family. I'm so excited to have them here for Thanksgiving. Uh, my name is Justin Mogg here on Sustainability Now. We've got David Mogg, Gloria Mogg, and Joel Mogg, my parents and brother. And uh, Joel's wife, Madeline Ostrander, is here. Uh, they're in from Seattle. And Madeline's new book, At Home on an Unruly Planet, is coming out in August. Um, now, Madeline, you and I have been bike touring, too. And, uh, Mom, you've done a little bit. I don't know that you've done the bike camping thing but you've done some end in bike touring yes yeah, much, little, much more luxurious well, well, yeah <laughs> uh, leisurely leisurely but uh, madeline and joel are also uh, bike commuters in seattle uh how did cycling come into your life was it joel's influence or 
It probably was a little bit of Joel's influence. I think also when I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, I knew a lot of people who were cycling and I was cycling to campus. And, um, um, and then when Joel and I started dating, um, I thought, Oh, this is an excuse for me to, you know, get into some longer distance riding. Yeah. So, um, I sort of secretly went on some longer rides because I didn't know how fast Joel would ride, and I thought, oh, I need to get in shape. Wow. Interesting. Ooh, la la. I did a, Yeah, right. Um, I, did a, um, I did a ride to the Mount Horeb Mustard Museum, which I don't nice. know if that still exists. Do you? It, it does exist, but they moved yeah. it from Mount Horeb oh, to Middleton, Wisconsin. Okay. Yes, yeah. And then there was that ride to the cheese shop. I'm forgetting what, what oh. cheese shop that was. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was about 15 miles from... There's lots of cheese shops, and so yeah, I'm not no, sure it was specifically one. like a little box that I think looked uh-huh. like a square of cheese. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I I'm forgetting that. where it was now. Yeah, but that's I, a good I did that ride. ride. That was a good ride. Yeah. <laughs> this was definitely something particularly alluring about Madeline when I first met her. <laughs> she was riding her bike everywhere, and she had that uh, really heavy steel horse of a bike, oh. the European style one. Yeah, I had an old Schwinn that weighed a thousand pounds or something. Yeah. Um, and yeah. <laughs> a better bike matters well now you have a very heavy bike right joel tell me about the e-bike that's true (laughs) speaking of heavy bikes the e-bike is a tank of a bike (laughs) and uh boy i'm glad for that too because you go a lot faster and when you take those turns and you want a nice fat tire and a sturdy frame Mm. um and it's also nice to be able to carry a lot more stuff Mm. uh you know to and from work or wherever you're going um and how long is your commute? I have a 15-mile commute, and um, I was doing it like as often as I could with my regular bike. But that, you know, 30 miles round trip plus a full day of work, yeah. uh, is is a lot. So um, and there's I, hills in Seattle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so I uh, so I wouldn't do it that often. So um, I, my thought was, you know, with the e-bike would motivate me to do it more often, and it is. And um, well, I think we also bought that bike as our second car, effectively. Yes, um, we also have had. We one didn't car really want to have time. a second car because we don't drive all that much. But um, if you have an e-bike, especially on Seattle hills, it's much easier to go to an errand or something and not, um, you know, feel like you've also had to take a shower exactly yeah (laughs) seattle has a huge biking um, culture you know everybody's biking everywhere in the rain and um but you don't always want to do that when it's 40 degrees and raining and you know there's a huge hill to climb to get to this to the grocery store you know but with the e-bike um it's not as big of a deal and it's got fenders and Mm -hmm. it's uh, you're just going to get there a lot faster you're not necessarily going to get all sweaty and Mm. yeah it makes it easier to just run out and dash out and get the milk on your bike rather than you know, right, right. Yeah. It, it really breaks down barriers. Um, well, I, I should I should also throw in here that Gloria and I made a decision to retire in place, uh, which is five miles directly west of the White House. And um, one of the reasons for that decision is that it's easy to bike to the mall to protest. <laughs> it's nice. easy to bike to the mall to be involved in a rally. It's easy to bike to the Capitol to go to an office of a member of Congress and and uh, lobby for a particular position. And it's hard to drive to all those things. Well, and, and you, parking is easy. You just have a lock and you lock right. your bike up to a, a street sign. And if you in need to. both D.C. and Seattle, unlike here in Louisville, there's some wonderful transit options when you need it, right? Uh, 
maybe on that rainy day. And in fact, Madeline, tell us about your commute when you worked for Yes Magazine and you got to take a ferry every day. <laughs> well, it's been a few years now, but yeah. Um, I We live in West Seattle, which, um, well, that's a whole other thing. Because they're having some infra- <laughs> the bridge, yeah, infrastructure yeah. dilemmas right now. But in any case... Um, you can still take the bus downtown. Um, I used to take the bus downtown and then, um, or I would bike. Actually, it was a qu- pretty quick bike straight onto the ferry. Yeah. I could basically bike a couple miles, like straight onto the ferry. And then, um, yeah, I went across the water. And at that time, um, they've actually s- sort of partially moved at this point. But at that time, all of Yes Magazine's offices were on Bainbridge Island, where I was an editor. And um, so I would take the boat to work. Just sounds so magical. Yeah, it was it was pretty nice. Sometimes <laughs> it wasn't so good in the depth of winter when uh, it was pouring rain. Yeah, but um, in the summer it did feel kind of magical to sort of feel like you were going on vacation yeah. while you were going to work. I mean, I worked a lot. But, yeah, yeah. But um, it still was really beautiful. And the other nice thing about the ferry is that um, you can kind of spread out and yeah. and work on the ferry. So I would use that time to do some pretty thoughtful work I while I was I have always commuting. dreamed of a ferry service on the Ohio River that could ferry me to Cincinnati or nearby towns, right? Uh, it, it, whether for pleasure or for work or so I can catch the train. <laughs> Speaking of trains, both cities, D.C. and Seattle, have made a lot of investments recently in light rail. Um, and you want to talk a little bit about that, about what, how that's transforming the city some? The big dig in Seattle is finally over, right? There's been a lot of big digs. Oh, okay. They're still <laughs> um, going? Yeah, for, uh, like, you know, wastewater and the light rail oh. and the car tunnel through mm-hmm. downtown. Um, right, because they took down an interstate. They used to have an elevated interstate. Yeah, well, well it wasn't an interstate, but it was It was definitely a major highway that went right by the waterfront, and they just demolished all that. Which is exactly what we have uh, here in Louisville. Uh, it was a big, ugly concrete yeah, structure. Yeah. It made a lot of noise. and um, So now that's all underground, wow. and eventually it's going to be quite a wonderful area. Wow. Uh, it's kind of still, it's, you know, many years of construction, though, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and w- yeah, we just opened uh, three new light rail stations, uh, get it going much further north. Um, wow. Seattle is kind of well behind D.C. for sure with the subway system. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're getting there. But we're you can just roll sure. your bike right on it, right? Yes. Yeah, you can. Super easy. Yeah. And they should be adding another couple to our neighborhood, though, though it's going to be a very long many-year process um and there's you know there's still some arm wrestling and discussion about where those are going to go and you know even some alternate proposals someone has talked about putting in like a sky tram oh wow um i don't know how serious that proposal is but but there that that does exist so there's still the usual you know i mean transportation projects are complex and i think that kind of wrestling is part of all of it it's part of but with the Making infrastructure package but, finally yeah. passing, maybe there'll be even more money for these kinds of projects. And and what's happening with the metro in D.C.? There's a new silver line, right? Oh, yeah. We're pretty excited. Uh, in a couple months, January, February, the silver line will finally have made it out to Dullis Airport. Oh, wow. And there, there are three major airports in, in the Washington area, two that are in Washington. The other one is closer to Baltimore. Uh, but... Uh, in, in order to get to Dulles, which is 25 miles from, wow. you know, Arlington. So yeah. it's a long way out. Uh, 
it was quite a deal um, <laughs> of buses and taxis yeah. and whatever. But um, in a couple of months, they finally have finished this <laughs> many, many, many years of um, planning to get to get that line out there. So, and of course, every time I return to Arlington, I see the impact of the transit system because we have transit-oriented development happening right in Arlington. Right, it looks completely different. Joel and I used to play mini golf for crying out loud down in Boston, where there's right. now twenty-story buildings. That's right, downtown Arlington. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Joel, yeah. do you even recognize it anymore? <laughs> it looks completely different. Yeah, there was the mini golf and the car dealership yes. and uh, the the um, the rundown strip mall. Right, and uh, and the arcade video magic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Remember that? Oh when my god! First played Miss Pac-Man. What's weird is that the International House of Pancakes remains, right? It's still yes, there. It does. Oh yes. <laughs> for, for the moment, who knows? Yeah, I guess it's hard to build on top of it with that roof, right? <laughs> but there are bike routes uh, all over Arlington now, and all over the entire area. It's really gone very, very bike friendly and pedestrian friendly, and lots of uh, slowing. Um, things that they do, but curb yeah. uh, cutouts and yeah. all that stuff traffic in order, in order yeah. to slow the traffic to decrease pedestrian injuries and death and bike, uh, biker uh, as well, cyclists. Um, but there's a lot more people, and Capital Bike Share now has got thousands, if not 10,000 bikes all over the area. Yeah. So there's a lot more people on bikes yeah. in the D.C. area. Well, and it's interesting to see how things have evolved with the uh, intermodal yeah. <laughs> methods, they call it. Um, and a lot of that actually had gone on in Europe and other countries where um, they had uh, heavy rail connecting to light rail, connecting mm -hmm. to uh, uh, trams, mm -hmm. <laughs> cable cars, <laughs> we call them cable cars, mm -hmm. uh, and other, other approaches. And now we're coming in with scooters and bicycles that you can pick up and drop off just anywhere. It's a, it's a marvel. It's a marvel uh, to see all of this evolving. And, Dad, of course, I always credit you when people ask me about how I got into sustainability and being car-free and biking. And I always say, well, my dad just showed me the way. He bike commuted every day, right? Tell tell. Tell the listeners about your bike commuting in D.C., even in the snow. <laughs> well, uh, well, I actually started out um, uh, enjoying the fact that when we lived in Rio uh, for three years, uh, going to work was a matter of taking a couple of buses. And the buses were all over the place and oh. taxis were very cheap. Uh, it wasn't safe to bike in Rio at the yeah. time, uh, although they've installed bike, tra bike trails uh, along the beach, especially in yeah. recent years. Yeah. But coming back then to the United States, we, we settled in this small town uh, in Ohio, Oberlin, Ohio, and uh, colleagues all got to work on bicycles. And oh. so I had a bicycle and I said, all right, now I'm going to bike to work. And I did, but it was a 10 minutes at, at, at <laughs> right, most, right, right? right? And all level uh, <laughs> and in a small town with, with no dangerous traffic. And uh, from there, we moved to Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, in Princeton, we lived close enough to uh, walk initially. Uh, and then when we bought our own home, we could bike mm -hmm. to, to, the, to the university. And so bike commuting was in my blood when I came to Washington. 
and we uh, we rented at a home that was near a metro stop, and I started to uh, commute to work on the metro. But then I thought, hey, um, maybe I could bike to work, and so I tried it, and my God, I found a tr I found a path that was hmm. safe and secure, uh, and and began doing that, and. From that point on, my commitment was that I am not going to use a private car to get to work. But it governed all my decisions. Right. It governed where I bought our, where we bought our house. It yeah. governed yeah. when I changed jobs. I literally put a compass down and I said, <laughs> this is the limit of my bike commute. Yeah, me too. And I only look for jobs within that, yeah. uh, within that circle. Yeah. And my, my round trip. Uh, uh, commute Joel was 15 miles, not one way, um, yeah. but it did revolve uh, in, involve an elevation change because yeah. I had to go through the Potomac River Valley, yeah. uh, and I literally taught at the highest point in Washington D.C. Oh wow! But as a result, uh, it was a 40, 40, 45 minute commute each way, and uh, I didn't need to go to the gym. Uh, I got my exercise, I got my cardio and, and uh, whatever out of my bike commute. In retirement, I needed to get a gym pass. <laughs> it's not as much fun. I don't get to see the evolving neighborhoods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one special thing about it, too, is you would come home and tell us about all the people you got to meet and talk to on the way home, family, friends, and things like that. That wouldn't have happened in I a car. I met really interesting people, yes, yeah. on my bike commute. They were I called them my bike commute friends. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, y'all, this has been just incredibly fun, and I knew the time would fly by. Uh, just want to remind folks, uh, Madeline Ostrander's book, At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth, will be coming out in August of next year from Henry Holt and Company. Can they pre-order the book now, Madeline? They actually can. You Ooh. can call up your local independent bookstore and ask. Thank you for saying that. Yes, the, there are many. There are many of your local bookstores that you might want to support. Uh, and you can learn more about it at madelineostrander.net. And if you want to get involved with Elders Climate Action and join David and Gloria Mogg uh, as part of the Elder team, you can go to eldersclimateaction.org. And Joel Mogg, thank you for joining me tonight. This was fun, y'all. Certainly. Yeah. Come Thank on you, back Justin. sometime. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a second, your community action calendar. I've got all kinds of ideas about how you can get engaged in sustainability locally this week. So stay tuned. Guantanamera. Guadira, Guantanamera. Guantanamera. Guadira, Guantanamera. Yo soy un hombre sincero.
are back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mugg. I hope you've sharpened your pencils and got your calendars out and are getting ready to take action for sustainability this week. First thing I want you to do is submit public comments. Take the survey about the state's long-range statewide transportation plan. You can make your comments now through December 6th at GetThereTogetherKY.org. The Kentucky Transportation Cabinet is updating their long-range statewide transportation plan, and they are in the process of collecting input via this survey that's now open through December 6th. They want your input. The Kentucky Cabinet is updating this plan to help us build a vision for the future. We want to know more about where you want to go and how you want to get there. If you are someone who would like to not have to drive everywhere, then I want you to go to getthertogetherky.org by December 6th and submit some public input. It's a short survey. Make your voice heard on priorities for our state's highways, of course, but also bridges, sidewalks, bike lanes, buses, waterways, air Ports, river ports, railroads, and so much more. Go to getthertogetherky.org by December 6th. Now, coming up this week on Tuesday, November 30th, the U of L Sustainability Roundtable will host their last roundtable of the fall, the fall semester with Samantha Ratchko from the EPA Region 3 Water Division. And uh, Samantha was instrumental to the EPA's 2018 report entitled Storm Smart Cities Guide, Integrating Green Infrastructure into Local Hazard Mitigation Plans. Communities across the country are facing a variety of challenges from outdated infrastructure to water quality protection to the need to increase community resilience and mitigate the impacts of flooding and other hazards. These communities, like ours, are looking for multi-purpose solutions to these challenges. Green infrastructure is one approach to improve water quality and address flooding challenges. Green infrastructure yields many benefits, including improved water quality, reduced flooding, infrastructure cost savings, and healthier communities. While green infrastructure alone may not fully address these issues, it adds capacity, flexibility, and resilience to other infrastructure systems and provides multiple community benefits. You'll want to learn more about it this Tuesday, November 30th at 4 p.m. online. You can join us from wherever you are. Find the link to join. There is no need to register in advance. Just join us uh, on Tuesday at 4 p.m. Find the link at louisville.edu slash sustainability for our roundtable with Samantha Ratchko from the EPA. Now, coming up on Wednesday, December 1st at 7 p.m., also online, it's Real Good News. Join us for updates from the front lines of climate activism. It's a quarterly conversation presented by the brilliant folks at 100% Renewable Energy Alliance of Louisville. Yes, the same activists who envisioned and orchestrated the 2020 Louisville Metro Council 100% Clean Renewable Energy Resolution. Well, they are still at it, determined to move Louisville beyond words and into action. The speakers for this December gathering of real good news are Owen Zinneman, National Renewable Energy Laboratory Rep, Casey Chambers Armstrong, our Louisville Metro Council District 8 representative, and Julie Donna from the Louisville Office of Advanced Planning and Sustainability. There'll also be music by John Gage. For more information and registration, go to renewableenergylouisville.org. That's Renewable Energy Louisville org for the Wednesday 7 p.m. Zoom uh, Real Good News. 
Now, Thursday, December 2nd at 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., the University of Louisville is holding a bi-local holiday bazaar at the University Club. Come load up on locally grown and handmade holiday gifts from UofL Farmers Market vendors and other local artisans. Our annual holiday bazaar is making its grand return this year in a new location at the University and Alumni Club right there next to the clock tower. The bazaar features over a dozen different local artisans and food producers coming together in one location for holiday shopping local style. You'll find unique holiday gifts and treats available only there, such as holiday decor, home goods, jewelry, baked goods, handcraft items, personal care items, charcuterie boards, personalized goods, art, and more. There will be door prizes and lunch available for purchase. Make your list, check it twice, and don't miss out. Coming out Thursday the 2nd from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the University of Louisville, University and Alumni Club. You can get more information at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Now, on this weekend, Saturday, December 4th, I want you to be planting trees with me. It's going to be great. We need Our city needs it so bad. We lose over 50,000 trees a year. Maybe you can be part of the solution. Join us on Saturday, December 4th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. for the next Greenheart South Louisville Tree Planting along with Louisville Grows. We're going to be meeting up at Wyandotte Park there at 1104 Beecher Street, calling all volunteers as we wrap up our fall season of tree plantings after an amazing start with over 100 volunteers helping us plant over 100 trees back on October 23rd. We are on track to plant 2,000 trees with Louisville Grows by the end of this year. Help us increase the tree canopy in neighborhoods that are most impacted by urban heat island and air pollution. This planting will focus on the Taylor, Barry, Jacobs, Hazelwood, Beachmont, Oakdale, and Wilder Park neighborhoods in South Louisville. This tree planting is in partnership with UofL's Greenheart Project, a first-of-its-kind multi-year study by taking a closer look at the relationship we have with our neighborhood trees and their effect on our mental and physical health, we can continue to grow greener, healthier neighborhoods. Big thank you to sponsors for this tree planting, Louisville Grows, UPS, Arbor Day Foundation, Nature Conservancy, and UofL's Enviroam Institute. You can contact Charlie if you want more information uh, about volunteering at volunteer at louisvillegrows.org or give him a call at 502-655-9830 with any questions or concerns. And to register, just go to louisville.edu slash sustainability. You'll find the event page and the link to register. It's Saturday, December. December 4th, meeting up at 9 a.m. at Wyandotte Park. Now, there's also another tree planting opportunity right after that. You can double dip this Saturday, December 4th, because from 1 to 4 p.m., there'll be a downtown central business district planting. Louisville Parks and Recreation is seeking volunteers to help with these fall plantings of street trees in our urban core. I have done it, you all. This is such gratifying work. You've been in our downtown concrete jungle. You know there is some need for some trees to make some oxygen, to clean the air, to help the stormwater, find some wildlife habitat. Give us some shade in our downtown for crying out loud. You can help plant trees in our downtown streets. This Saturday, December 4th from 1 to 4 p.m., it is the, the 
of the heart of the heat island here in Louisville. We really need your help. No experience is necessary. Tools, gloves, and instruction are provided. It's a whole lot of fun doing this with Louisville Metro Parks. And there'll be a final planting on Saturday, December 11th from 1 to 4 as well. You'll need to register for these volunteer opportunities in order to be sent the specific planting location. And you can do so using the Better Impact app. You can find the link to register at facebook.com slash Urban Forestry. That's L-O-U Urban Forestry. And for any questions, contact Sarah Flarsheim. That's S-A-R-A-H dot F-L-A-R-S-E-H-E-I-M at LouisvilleKY.gov. Or you can contact Sarah by phone at 502-901-8191. And on Sunday, December 5th, Bernheim is having their first Sunday nature hike at 2 p.m., meeting at the Visitor Center. Join a volunteer naturalist for an engaging nature hike on the first Sunday of each month. These hikes are longer than their first Saturday hikes and are aimed primarily at adults, but children over six are welcome. No pets are allowed, however. For full information and registration, you can go to bernheim.org, B-E-R-N-H-E-I-M.org for the Sunday. December 5th, 2 to 3.30 p.m. First Sunday Nature Hike meeting at the Visitor Center. And finally, on Sunday, December 5th at 6 p.m. at the Louisville Nature Center, the Kentuckiana Beekeeping Association is going to have their December holiday party and some fun competitions. It's a potluck-style event, so bring a dish to share, and the club will be providing both uh, sandwiches for both um, carnivores and vegetarians like me. Awards will be given for the 2020 volunteer of the year for the best edible honey product any kind of edible food product made with honey including savory dishes like honey barbecue wings or honey cornbread cakes spiced honey butter honey bread as well as drinks like mead and honey tea creamed honey flavored or unflavored is also included in this category and it will be judged by you all the crowd who comes everyone will get a ticket to vote boy this is sounding delicious already there'll also be a competition for best honey dessert bring your baklava your honey cakes your honey tarts your honey nut bars your honey cookies honey pies and more and it will be judged by the crowd so come and get a ticket to vote there'll also be a best black jar honey competition bring in your favorite your different honey varieties and they will pour a little in a small cup for judges who will vote on the honey by flavor alone it is so much fun you all this sunday december 5th if you want to get into beekeeping and meet fellow beekeepers this is the time to do it at their december holiday party from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Louisville Nature Center. You can learn more at kyannabees.com, kyannabees.com for the KBA December holiday party. Well, that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're having a great week getting back on the treadmill, if you will, after a, a, a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, thank you all for tuning in, and I will be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. You and me, our whole world seems